This is episode 25 of the What's Up podcast, presented by Old Ricky Astro. Today is the 23rd of May, 2018. My name is Martin. I'm Ali. And I'm William. We're going to cover a few different stories today that have caught our eye in the news. We're going to try and give you uh, a bit of an insight into a, a mission that's just been launched. We're going to try and give you some backgrounds on a backwards-going object. And then we're going to bring it back down to Earth and talk a little bit about re-entry. So we're going to kick off with the middle story there, which was about uh, some background on a backwards object. William, what am I talking about? I haven't a clue. Backwards on a background, what? (laughs) So this is talking about the intriguing uh, report this week, which was discussing a backwards object. Uh, So there are many asteroids in our solar system, all well, there are many things in our solar system all merrily trundling around the sun, like like we are right now as we speak. Um, But... If you looked from above... I don't trundle. I cavort. (laughs) Cavorting around the solar system. If you were to travel away from the solar system and look back down and look at everything, everything would be going around in the same direction. Um, However, you know, all the planets, all the asteroids, they're all kind of, I don't know, actually, if you looked from above, they'd be going anti-clockwise. It doesn't... My head has already melted. There's no up in space. Fair point. So I'm going to say they're all going anti-clockwise, except for this object. Um, which is, they were reporting this week, which is going the other way around. So it seems to be trundling in the opposite direction or cavorting in the opposite direction, <laughs> um, which has, of course, raised a few eyebrows um, suitably uh, because it's a little bit weird because the thing is, uh, you, somehow you need to get that thing either, well, everything, so you should start off by saying everything, we think the reason everything goes in the same direction because it formed from a big cloud of stuff uh, four and a half billion years ago um, and therefore it was all going and this cloud was rotating and that's why everything's going the same way. Um, so if you want something to go the other way around, then either you need to give it some whopping great big kick, um, you need to swing it past a planet, or, as this thing is proposing, this paper is proposed, um, maybe it's an object from another solar system which came swooping in and got trapped, um, and was therefore its orientation direction is going is completely irrelevant, doesn't, unconnected to anything else, um, and that is a possible reason why this object is going the other way. So did you say this was an orbit around Jupiter? Or is it just it, so? It's an orbit around the sun. Okay, um, but it's it's on a relatively kind of uh, eccentric orbit. So it kind of sometimes it's a bit closer than Jupiter, but most of the time it's further away. Than so Jupiter. is this a little bit similar to the Oumuamua? The, it could be because that's confirmed to be from interstellar space, but it was moving too fast, so it didn't get caught. Yes, but it turned a corner. But if you come in at a better angle, slightly lower speed, then you can you could get settle into grabbed. Yeah. Um, However, there are a few caveats on this, um, because this was a news story I read, and I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. I'm going to go and look at this. Um, for starters, one which I didn't realize was apparently there were a few objects like this. So we know of a few which are going the wrong way around. Um, little things, not nothing big, um, but little asteroids. Um, but the reason this one has had a press release is somebody's been doing a lot of modeling of the system. Um, and so they've been trying to work out where it came from and all the possible ways in which you could throw it in and capture it or the way you could ping it backwards by maybe, you know, one of the things is like, could it have had a close pass by another planet and got swung around? You know, you think of watching a, you know, your favourite space film and things do that close flybys and they go whoosh and off they go. It's um, a little bit 2001. It could be a little bit. Yeah, um, could, could be an obelisky thing. <laughs> possibly an obelisk going the wrong way. Uh, but so they, they from the modelling they have tried to argue that, that it must have been caught from a different system. Um, but, it, yeah, it sounds... It's you a, don't sound convinced. I'm not totally convinced. Um, I think basically they've managed to say that it's not impossible that this wouldn't have been stable for a long time, um, judging by putting in lots of different things into the model 
And they run the model thousands of times with different, well, millions of times, in fact, um, with different parameter sets. And you kind of have giving a different initial velocity and a different little kick. And you put in an extra mass here and you do all these kind of different orientations. And you kind of go, oh, well, actually, it looks like it could have come in from somewhere else. But that that system, that way of modeling, it doesn't rule out all the other options. It um, does raise a nice possibility, though, because the Oumuamua one was moving too fast for us to even get close to catching up to it in time to do science um, and maybe take samples. But if you know it's parked somewhere, you could potentially send a mission out to go and see what the cloud of stuff was that another star system had to, to form from. So that's potentially very cool. But well, I, I, is this going to get confirmed no, Beyond I don't think or... it will. That's the trouble. I think the difficulty is that all you can do is just say it's going the wrong way. But to actually confirm where it's confirm how that happened, how it got either turned around or how it whether it came got caught from somewhere. The it's just are really fun, hard. That's Absolutely. Like... And the exciting thing is there's so many of them. That, you know, we're gonna keep finding lots of the, the the amazing fact is that right now we're at a point where we are starting to image the sky repeatedly with very sensitive systems. So in the past, we were imaging the sky, you know, over the course of a year or so, and we'd, we'd map out the whole thing and take pictures. Duh, duh, duh. Now we have these massive detectors. We've got m large telescopes, really, really sensitive systems. You, We're going to be, I mean, there's a system coming online in a few years' time called LSST, which will map out oh, the whole that's sky. Gonna, that's going to be real it, shiny. It's going to be insane. You I think the, the going statistics for that is it's a million transient events per night. Yeah. So it's things going bang. Um, it's going to find an awful lot. And too many to follow up. Exactly. So, so the new game in town is how you pick what the heck are the most <laughs> interesting swamped objects. in data. Yeah. Um, but it, but we, another one of the developments you need to think about when you've got these big systems coming online is how you process the data. Because previously, like in, in the olden days, you would take lots of photographic plates from telescopes in all across the world. They'd all come back to Edinburgh to get processed, to get counted, to get analysed. And that process took months, Yeah, let's be honest. Whereas instead here, you've got the entire sky in multiple um, different filters, so different colours of imagery, mm -hmm. every three nights, the entire sky, to a depth, sort of in terms of uh, faintness, which, which you know, those old surveys would never even have approached. Um, and you've got to continually process this. But the amazing thing is you'll do that, and you'll go, oh, something's moved here, something's moved here, something's moved here, and you will, you will get thousands of these objects. Um, and so we, we're going to have a whole host of candidates. We'll have to do a careers thing at some point. But for people who know their software and they're very good at working <laughs> with large databases, it's it's going to be a bit of a, a golden time for diving really into is. these yeah. things and trying to get them efficiently moved around. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the people here are very good at that. I am not. <laughs> I can query them and I break them and I can work with the small tables. But, you know, a billion objects at a time is hard work. It's ludicrous. But we're going to have a, a very different understanding of our Solar system, the mm. old traditional mm. nice map which you draw in school of nine slash eight planets. Sorry, um, Pluto. Yeah, sorry, Pluto. And then maybe an asteroid belt if you go into a lot of detail, and maybe if you go into loads of detail, you put in a Kuiper belt. Um, it's like no. Don't forget actually. Elon Musk's car. You know. Elon Musk's car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's going to be oh, just so many different things, and we will find lots of different uh, routes and orbits. Yeah. And, and and actually, this, I mean, and, you know, what you say, if candidates for going things to go and look at. Oh, Glorious. Uh, speaking of hotballs, though, I mean, we, we talked about this before we, we went live, but the Planet Nine thing is, is yeah. you don't necessarily have the capability to see Planet Nine directly easily. 
Um, but you can infer that it's there because there's too many oddballs all doing something similar. So if you study the most eccentric asteroids that all seem to be in a certain plane and at certain uh, orientation relative to the plane of the solar system, then you can infer that there might actually be another planet that we don't know about. Maybe not a planet. I should maybe not nope. say because it's not being confirmed. A large object. But again, the models are suggesting that that would all be explained if there was something massive over in that direction. And quite so massive, isn't it? It tells us to go and look for something uh, which we can potentially find with these new shiny bits of kit that are going to come on stream. So it's it's a fun time for the oddballs. It becomes incredibly difficult to model because in order to be able to... So, so the way the way they've worked out this Planet 9 possibility, um, which we should say this is something which we think is maybe 10 times the size of the Earth and considerably further away, considerably further away than Pluto, which is why we haven't yet seen it if it's there. And the way they've done that is by looking at the motions of hundreds of objects and then you look at the way their gravity interacts with thousands of other objects, and then you say, well, hang on, in order for them to have stable orbits and be in these orbits, do you need a bit more mass somewhere else? Which actually is exactly the way they found things like Neptune and stuff in the past, that they were able to make predictions about where it would be based on the orbits of the few big planets. Neptune was the first, right? Where you measure the wobbles yeah. in, was it Uranus, and it wasn't quite explained, so they realised there should have been something else. Yeah, um, so we say go look over there, mm. and they found it. Now, that's a kind of the same thing we're doing. It's just we have to now include thousands upon thousands of things in the solar system, which is just awesome. The game gets messier. Yeah, when you start talking about the, that many the, that many things. The detail we're getting to, and yet we're still probably only scratching the surface of all the things because more detail means smaller objects. Smaller objects, there are more of them, and as you get down to the tiny little things, which are you know hundreds of meters across, there are loads. Um, so that's going to be lots of fun, lots of mapping to do. There's still only one Tesla Roadster, though. <laughs> you think? Unless there's one from was, another, another, stop, another need, solar system. I need to stop bringing up his damn Tesla shop. <laughs> if, we find a, if we find two of them, then there's, there's a real question to be asked. Oh, it's a difficult light curve to model, though. You know, shiny bits and spacey bits. and oh. <laughs> So, keeping with the topic of man-made things in space, there is something else that's been launched recently, um, which we want to have a chat about, and that is NASA's new Mars lander. Uh, which is called Insight, Yay. hence the awful pun at the beginning, but giving you an insight. Into, a lovely insight pun. into lovely Insight. Pun. Beautiful, Martin. Beautiful. Uh, so I had to look up what Insight, uh, what the name Insight means, because it is a tenuous, very, very tenuous acronym. Uh, it's it, actually an acronym. Well, <laughs> oh, mm, you've okay. written it down. I have, I've had to write it down. So it's Interior Exploration Using Seismic Investigations. Where do you get the H? What? Where'd you get the E? Yep. Yep. This this is there's no E. Well, there's like there's only so many good mission names. <laughs> Apollo is, was taken, Saturn was taken, Vulcan was taken. Where just yeah. That's a really good name. What? 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 No, that's appalling. But what, doesn't it should... relate to the science that it's doing in the yes. it's, it's an insight into Mars, literally yes. into oh, Mars. I think I think that this is more clever, to be honest. Isn't there? Uh, calling it that and trying to link them together is a bit of a mistake. Too clever for its own good. Don't, just don't link them. There was a mission recently. No, it never got launched, but maybe it will get launched in a few years. Twinkle mm. <laughs> about looking for sort of twinkling of stars. Um, and it's like, what's the acronym for? It's like, it's not. We just like the name. It's like, yes, that's, that's way a it should great be idea. Yeah, good like name. Mm -hmm. Just go with it. There Fine. was a project we were involved with here, uh, which was a precursor to an instrument called Eagle, uh, and thus was called Canary. Canary. Was not an acronym, but for sufficiently long, people started just capitalizing the whole thing, assuming it was an acronym. They came up with a very, very tenuous acronym for it 
because that just was less hassle. But, but then you can be forgiven one. for people acronymizing. Yes, <laughs> what was just a word yes. for something that did, did, incidentally was it designed to pass out if the gas levels were? High? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm guessing it was a bit more technical than that. It's just a little bit, yeah. <laughs> uh, although an add-on to it was also called Chuff, so they were really sticking with the small bird names. <laughs> Anyway, that's, that's completely an aside. That's definitely an aside. Anyway, yeah. so yeah, InSight is a really cool mission though, um, because it's going to look at the interior structure of Mars. So we believe we understand how the interior structure of the Earth works. You've got sort of crust, and you've got liquid layers and solid layers, and you've got a solid iron core that's spinning. Not a geologist, I'm not going to try and do any more detail <laughs> than that. I do not remember this from primary school. Some of the interior is now exterior in Hawaii. I've been watching the live feed of that. If, if, if that's still going, it's absolutely fascinating. It's not nice because it's melting some people's homes and everything, but oof. Uh, so yeah, geology is it's, it's interesting these days. Um, so they're going to do this. So this has been done on Earth using sort of seismographs and understanding how the earthquakes pass through the, the Earth. That's one of the main ways they've tried to get an understanding of um, how the Earth is structured. The plan is to do basically the same thing on Mars. They're launching this this lander. It will. It was launched on the fifth of May, and it's going to be arriving on the twenty sixth of November. And then it's going to be on the Martian surface for about one Martian year, which is about two Earth years. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a sort of. I'm sort nodding of, like I can. My interior Wikipedia is telling. Me. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no, that's about right. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. about right. Yeah. Um, and I mean the lander itself is quite a. I'm not going to say a basic thing, but it's something been done before. It's based very heavily on one of the previous missions called the Phoenix lander. There's not a particularly fancy lander in itself. Uh, it's got a number of instruments on board, but the big thing that it's doing is it's got a robotic arm built into the lander. And once it's plunked itself down and is, is settled, it's going to lift two instruments off its payload and onto the ground nearby. So the arm is about two meters long, so it can place these things at a slight distance from its body. Um, and one is a seismometer, uh, which is going to be measuring sort of vibrations, tremors in the Martian surface. It is also covered in a whole weather station. Um, because you have to decouple normally when you do seismometers here on earth you put them inside sort of caverns or away from air flows or that kind of thing no wind buffeting yeah. Thing. Yeah. exactly you don't so, have a cavern handy um, yeah so they've had to put a lot of on top of the thing to try and decouple atmospheric vibrations from geological vibrations or Marsological vibrations. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but is is the game in town that, that Mars is, we think, much less active than the Earth in that it doesn't have plate tectonics? It's kind of shrunk, which is why the the Mariner Valley looks weirdly huge because the planet itself has radius got a little bit smaller over time and it's had very big volcanoes, but there's nothing obviously active, but it will still have quakes and tremors. Yeah. And each one of those is like a little ringing of a bell. Yep. And if you do careful number crunching, the seismometer tells you yeah. all kinds of weird stuff about how the waves are propagating mm-hmm. through the core. Is exactly. That, yeah, yeah that's, that's how it works. I mean, I'm not, I'm not ah, going to pretend to really understand it. <laughs> I, my understanding, which is loose, is it's a bit like ultrasound in the sense that you send vibrations through, you measure the vibrations coming back. In this case, you're not sending vibrations through because you can't. You're just waiting for them to occur and you're detecting them. Do we, do we have any idea what frequency... Mars quakes. Yeah. Has, has, yeah. has anyone looked at this before in terms of have the other rovers? I mean, is this something which we just sort of assume is there, or have we got some evidence of? I don't know actually. I this is know. the first proper like size seismological experiment that's going. Right. So I think this is going to send a lot, a lot of information back. Like, what, what if they're not there at all? That'd be, that'd be pretty frustrating, um, wouldn't it? Like, oh, well, there's enough evidence. No, they they might, might, there's there's enough vol- there's volcanoes and stuff that are there now. Yes. Non-active, given, but they're there. So there must be tectonics. We've, I know we've done this on the moon. Uh, the mm-hmm. astronauts dropped um, seismometers that ran off batteries, I think. So eventually they stopped working. Um, 
but the they could actually measure the impact of the Saturn 4B booster was specifically put on an impact course. And with the seismometers, they were they had a known exact impact with a known mass, so they could run some numbers uh, and use the seismometers to tell them something about the moon structure. So that was that was a really cool experiment. That well, um, again, this is this one doesn't have that many bit. <laughs> well, this is going to be detecting Martian meteorite strikes as well. Ah, but then you don't have a you don't have a guaranteed view of what's come in. You just you nope. just see the echo of it whacking in. But do you, um, did you get moon moonquakes? I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then what, what's happening? I think there? they're caused by Earth. Uh, and some ah, system vibes stretching you know, it. Yeah. Tidal shugling. Be- because it's tidal as opposed to <laughs> probably not scientific term. Okay, getting really like basic level, but our earthquakes are formed by plate tectonic interaction. You get a bit of everything, don't you? You get the surface ones, you get the deep ones, you get um, magmatic y things. But and... Do you need plates in order to have earthquakes? Mm, don't think so. Don't think so. Because right. I mean, Cause cause we don't by quakes as well, because I mean, you get helioseismology, mm. which yeah. is quakes on the sun, and obviously there's no moving plates there yeah but it is vibrations passing through the, the surface object. yeah makes it wobble Oof. yeah and so you can you can study that it's cool and you can even do that with kepler's light curves for it was yeah. looking for transiting exoplanets but it has a good enough light curve for loads of stars that you can actually see um you can do astro seismology mm. for distant stars now as well yeah. not not at the level of detail you can do for our sun but mm. um it's, it's fun that this is a technique that works from <laughs> very far away as well yeah it's actually it's again this is completely off topic but there's an instrument that we built here called Harps North, which has done work. It's been hooked up. So this is an exosolar planet detecting a spectrograph. Looking I've heard that name a lot. Velocity I think curve. it's got a lot of cool discoveries under it. it well. <laughs> I, I helped align it. Um, <laughs> my claim to. Um, it's been hooked up to a solar telescope, and they've actually been analysing the seismic, co- seismic events on the sun's surface to try and see how much movement that causes. And it's comparable to Earth-sized planets going around stars. Oh. So they have to decouple this information from other stars um, and it's just been really interesting and i know the harps instrument which is the sister instrument in chile are doing this as well now there's lots of work going into decoupling helioseismology so they can understand better exoplanet detection if i'm right in thinking the statistic for harps north was that it's sensitive enough that it can measure a change in velocity of the star that it's following of a person walking like one meter per second if you use it in certain modes that is yes. epic for something that's happening incredibly far away. So, you know, a change of one meter per second. I like it because is enough to when talking about predict. Doppler shifts, I often sort of say, you know, you've, you've heard the fire engine shift and, you, you know, you, you know, you're changing the sound of the pitch of the fire engine. It's also changing color that's coming towards you. And these spectrometers could measure the change in color of the fire engine. Yeah. Which is really silly. Uh, <laughs> gentlemen, we're on a tangent. We are, sorry. So the other instrument that's on InSight, which is worth mentioning, is another thing that's going to plonk down on the surface just next to it. And it is a, um, a, a heat flow probe, is what it's called. And again, I'm going to probably offend the person people, people who worked on it by saying it's basically a thermometer that digs itself into the ground and then measures the temperature below the surface. I think it was going up to about five meters yeah, down really below deep, the surface, yeah. which is the deepest thing they've ever yes. put into the Martian surface. Yeah. Cool. And it measures the temperature difference between there and the, the sort of surface. And that gives you a heat flow rate. And from that, you can understand more about the internal um, shape, the internal geometry, the internal mechanisms of the Martian uh, body as well. Okay, cool. which is which is really cool. I know that you get you get two heating or three heating mechanisms. You get tidal heating, which two things orbiting one another. You get heating from that. You've got radioactive decay from when they were mm-hmm. formed. So just those elements merrily radiating away um, give you a little bit of energy. 
and you also have just the energy left over from formation too. So you've got those three things. And because Mars is a bit small relative to the Earth, it's lost a lot of its heat. But I don't know if um, this is more kind of surface heat in that. I think they're also interested in seeing how... Um, so is that to do with like solar radiation? Yeah, and how, seeing how, how much is trapped within the... To t- I'll try and model the Martian atmosphere. I will to some be Wikipediaing this as soon as we're done. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so drilling that deep into a foreign body, I mean, presumably is, is is Bruce Willis going with them? <laughs> because I mean, that's five meters. I mean, you, you need some serious mining help. I'm sure. <laughs> and after all, mining is not a science; it's an art. According it is to, an art. According to Armageddon, which is not yeah. the best scientific reference point. <laughs> um, but there's also there's another experiment on board as well, which I thought was worth mentioning. Uh, which is a radio, um, a radio experiment, and it's called Rise, and it's using sort of two radio antennas on the surf on the top of the lander, um, and the NASA Deep Space Network, which is like a network of sort of relay satellites that NASA used to bounce signals all around the solar system, and it's essentially a very accurate GPS system. So they're going to very accurately track where uh, the lander is to measure the wobble of the Martian uh, rotation axis to try and get a better understanding Whoa. of the seasons and that sort of thing, and the impact that has on... I'm guessing this is not an obvious wobble. Um, no. In the same way the Earth's wobble is not very obvious to me, but is easily, to, easy, easily measured, is it? Mm. <laughs> Challenge accepted. But, but you forgot the thing that I'm most interested about this mission, which isn't the bit that's going to Mars, it's the bit that's flying past Mars at high speed with ah. it. Uh, this one has CubeSats. This well, does. The first have. ever deep space CubeSats, and I think, because we'll probably talk about this next time, I may have to now shut up. <laughs> that, is the, that was going to be my link. So, yeah, there's two CubeSats on board, and these are really cool with little satellites that have been ferried along. It is the first, as you say, deep space CubeSats. A whole another mission, essentially. It's just piggybacked on and got a free ride. Um, but we're going to talk about that next episode because we're going to do a sort of a, a bit of a, a special talking about CubeSats, uh, and particularly CubeSats in Scotland, because it's a really big part of our industry here. Um, and the reason we're going to be doing that is the we just had a new building opening on site, which is opening in two days' time, uh, which is the Higgs Centre for Innovation, and that has a big link to the CubeSat industry in Scotland. And we should hopefully be joined by the manager of said building, who can tell us a little bit more about what's going on in Scotland, and it links nicely into that story as well. I may have to bring in my idea for a CubeSat, see what he thinks. <laughs> <laughs> so then we can't issue the, if, if you want to try and copyright that, we can't put the podcast uh, out. So. Note oh. to self, come up with CubeSat ideas before <laughs> next month. <laughs> Or anybody else, send them in. You know, <laughs> this is the time. Okay, so that's also the Insight launch covered. Now let's try and bring it back down to Earth. And we're going to talk a little bit about re-entry. Now, why are we talking about re-entry? Oh, because Tim Peake's back in the news. Uh, and this is a bit more of a local flavour, which is kind of fun. Um, but he took a selfie on uh, Chamber Street because his most recent vehicle in question was the um, Soyuz descent vehicle that he came back to Earth with. He'd been on the space station for, I think it was six months was the yeah. sort of standard oh. stay. Uh, so his spacecraft is on a tour of the UK and Chamber Street and the National Museum of Scotland have it. And you can go and visit it. It's going to be there till the 4th of August. And you can go and see the kind of burned out husk that is this tiny little metal ball that keeps three people alive for three and a half hours and brings them back to Earth. Um, so I'm going to go. I think we'll try and... We're I've, going to I've, make a day of it, you guys. Yep, yep. I've already been. Ah, um, oh, what? Yeah. You what? Know, us. Right. Me and Martin are going. No. And, and we'll take a selfie and we'll, 
It's like, yeah. it's like there's someone in your life is more special to you than we are. <laughs> Deeply offended. But, but well, I, didn't, I didn't do the ride thing without you, so it's all right. Well, this is the thing, and I'm going to recommend people try this having not tried it yet myself, but for a fiver, I think, you can book yourself into the VR Descent Experience where Timbo himself apparently is your guide on this journey. So you get put in inside person. this. Is he there for every... every no. <laughs> I'm not sure. No, I, I think it's a virtual digital, reality a digital Tim. It's, I think they have the, the Tim Peak aftershave wafting around the ah, room, okay. so you can feel like, I mean, it must smell pretty bad, and I saw you anyway, but... <laughs> That's beside that. <laughs> but you, you do the descent, so um, it's, it takes about three and a half hours, so obviously they cut out most of the boring stuff. So you have a very slow wander away from the space station, but then, then the actual re-entry bit, it's, I mean, it is the numbers melt brains when you try and talk about, you know, the, the space station is only 400 kilometres away from the surface of the Earth. But it's doing around about seven and a half kilometers per second. And in terms of speed, that is a large number. It's, it's, it's hypersonic. It's so fast. It's faster than the fastest thing you can think of. Don't say the speed of light. But yeah, it's, it's very fast. The fastest I mean, object you can think of. Yeah, well, I was, I was trying a to work out the, no, the best way of comparing the, 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 the sort of speed and the time. You can do it in Mach number, which is speed of sound. Yeah. So Mach 1 is the speed of sound. The fastest, pass, uh, the fastest air-breathing jet is around about Mach 3, 3.5, depending on which rumours you believe for the Blackbird. Uh, the X-15 rocket plane could do 6.5 Mach, um, but that was still in the upper atmosphere, and it was technically a space plane, but it was rocket-powered instead of air-breathing. Uh, and this is Mach 22. That's how fast <laughs> you have to go just to stay in orbit. And then you have to slow down, so you have to lose a huge amount of energy. So your little capsule has no fuel left. You've done your mission. You can't afford to launch enough fuel to slow you right down to land you like a comedy sci-fi rocket does. And um, so you Sorry. just use the atmosphere. slash a real rocket from Elon Musk. But yeah, Elon's rocket is nah, empty by the time it comes back. It doesn't have people in it. Um, so yeah, you can you could do it, but it would cost you a lot of money, and your your rocket at the start would be you know mm, twice yeah, the size. Yeah. So um, you come back and you cheat. But you can't use parachutes because you're hypersonic. You've got to get subsonic. So you bleed off all your energy, basically just slamming into the atmosphere at high speed. And your heat shield literally burns up. So it's, your heat shield is crumbling away. And the gas that comes out of that is actually slowing the spacecraft down enough that you can spit out your parachutes. And it's got to do this and be aerodynamically controllable so that it's not just a sphere, which is what the original Russian design was. That's, that's very good, but it doesn't like steer. Because uh, you need to have an asymmetry to have a bit of drag and get some aerodynamic lift so you can actually steer a little bit. You have to get the entry angle just so. Um, and this VR experience is going to put you in, in the hot, sort of literally the hot seat. Um, interior shouldn't increase in temperature too much. Oh, that'd be great no. if they did. It's just like pump out heat. Into the <laughs> yeah, I was, I was trying to think the best movie reference is Apollo 13, I think. That has a Ooh. good re-entry sequence where you Ooh. can get a feel for what's going on. Apollo spacecraft were coming back faster. So they were about 11 kilometers per second uh, entry interface, whereas um, the ones from the ISS are seven and a half. But you still need to get way still, slower. Yeah. Um, I think gravity. Gra oh, yeah. Gravity's got a really shiny entrance. Gravity's full of nonsense. Yeah, there's loads of nonsense. Um, but, but the entrance bit is really good. It's some very stirring music. It's very good. Yes. If, if you're not in a re like entry capsule, science? you will. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think you do get a slight feeling for the, 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 the way it's heating up. Really, really well in that in the gravity sequence because yeah, you really see it burning. The atmosphere is very um, thin to begin with, and, and very quickly it'll start to yeah. strip away at your outside layers, mm -hmm. and they will burn up. It's apparently one and a half thousand degrees this thing reaches oh, on the yeah, outside, believe, which is but, yeah. you know, that's melting quite a lot of metals at um, that point. So I was trying to come um, up with a speed comparison that wasn't Mach numbers, and I was working out the distance from here to the hydro as the Google flies. 
Uh, and if you did it at the speed of an F1 car, which, by the way, is Mach 0.1. I thought that was quite an interesting number to have in the, in the back of my head. You'd get there in about 12 and a half minutes if you drove in a straight line. Uh, if you were doing um, Mach 1, it would take, hold on, three and a bit minutes, three minutes and 20 seconds at Mach 1. At the speed of the ISS, it's nine seconds. But the trick is to slow down. You know, you get there in nine seconds, but you'd be turned to Geely if you tried to stop instantly. (laughs) Hence the the, the need for all this kind of palava. And the Soyuz has got quite a unique landing system because it doesn't doesn't do water landings. And then that soggy NASA way of coming back, it it has solid rocket motors that fire in the last fraction of a second to slow you down by a factor of five. So that instead of a really hard landing, you have a roughly gentle landing. But the acceleration from those motors is notoriously shaky and uncomfortable to be in it. And I'm sure Timbo will be in your ear saying, this hurt my neck <laughs> when we when we broke. Uh, it's it, still it, like a sort of, like a car crash, isn't it? When it, I mean, like not not a, not a bad car crash, but it, it, I thought the impact when you actually hit the ground is still kind of like you know if you're in a uh, you know someone rams into the back of you in a in a traffic jam. Yeah. It's that kind of like <laughs> it's a real yeah. um, even just, after slowing down. I think you would claim on your insurance. Yes, I've come up with a game that I might have to make an astronaut do if I wasn't going to annoy his, his compatriots too much. Because um, why well, I, I like talking about orbits is falling with style. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas re-entry is not really much style it's kind of like a shonky loud your spacecraft's literally on fire you're having to throw out parachutes there's going to be if you make an astronaut just hum the same note for the whole trip it'll be a it's like you know like various accelerations and as different things happen so it's not a comfortable glamorous thing by any no, means I mean, even beyond just how uncomfortable the, the ride is the actual you know <laughs> like the seat you're sitting in isn't exactly comfortable or spacious now is it no it's a diddy little thing the 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 Sawyer's landing bit i mean tiny um and they've squeezed three people in it looks like a little um it's almost like a little ghost from pac-man it's that kind of shape like a little dome yeah um, like an old school diving bell got, you know from yeah the, the one of those yeah <laughs> and and, and they've, they've got these tiny little windows and they've it, within there they've squeezed three little people and then there's all the gubbins of all the stuff you kind of have around you um and it must be Really, pretty alarming. And all you can see out if you look out the window, presumably, is just flame, <laughs> fire, yeah, and death. I, I think it takes. If, if you can see you at the very small windows. <laughs> yes. So, once, once you've left ISS, you do your re entry burn, which essentially slows you down. Then, about half an hour later, you start to kiss the upper bit of the atmosphere. And then, about eight minutes later, so that's quite a long time for your heat shield to be slowly heating up. And eventually, you start to get into the high G forces. Um, then you've slowed down to subsonic and then you're on your parachutes and then I can't remember how many minutes from there down to the ground, but it's a fairly intense mm-hmm. experience. So I can imagine the VR thing could be interesting. Yeah. We will review it. If one of us throws up, we will be honest and tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Sandra Bullock only did it in a couple of minutes. It's easy. I know. That, I think that's gravity's chief complaint is that it cuts out too much of the real... No, there's the, a bit the, of a fire extinguisher. There's definitely a bit of a fire extinguisher. <laughs> I, I think if we're going to sit here and discuss all the flaws in gravity, we're going to have a whole other episode can, of the podcast. Can we do. do that another day, please? So no. I'm, I'm sure we can after, probably after a few beers. Excellent. Uh, but I think we'll leave it there then, guys. Aye. So thanks very much. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll speak to you again. Cheers, all. Bye. If you've enjoyed this banter and you want to hear more from us, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Old Ricky Astro. Links are in the show notes. 